In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies, it is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. The aim of this project, as stated by Theodore Adorno's introduction to the sociology of music, was to program a mass culture as a form of extensive social control that would steadily degrade its consumers. And the application of their research into human behavior was set to launch a decade later in this major irreversible cultural revolution in America. And so basically the brainwashers concluded that mass media events had caused people to suspend their belief in reality. C60 Evo delivers the miracle molecule, ESS60. It's pure carbon 60. Why not love your body and share C60 Evo with those you love? ESS60 from C60 Evo is a mega antioxidant for increased strength, endurance, flexibility, and a deeper sleep. It's great for pets too. I take a tablespoon every day and so does the mighty Aphrodite. We're both sleeping better than we have in years. And during the day, we have such tremendous energy and vitality. We're both pain-free. In a landmark peer-reviewed animal study in Paris, France, rats fed ESS60 lived 
twice their normal lifespan. Go to c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen or click on the C60Evo link in the episode notes. Use the code EVRS at checkout and save 10%. ESS60 from C60Evo. Order your miracle in a bottle today. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Daniel Estelin is standing by. Daniel wrote the huge bestseller, The True Story of the Bilderberg Group, and he has uh, come out with another one. He's done it again. This is going to send shockwaves uh, throughout the world, I'm sure. Let me crib here from the back of Daniel Estelin's latest book. The Tavistock Institute in Sussex, England, describes itself as a non-profit charity that applies social science to contemporary issues and problems. But this book posits that it is the world's center for mass brainwashing and social engineering activities. Daniel Estlin is an award-winning investigative journalist and best-selling author of The True Story of the Bilderberg Group. Other books include Shadow Masters, Deconstructing WikiLeaks, Trans Evolution, and the novel The Octopus Deception. He's been featured on Jesse Ventura's Conspiracy Theory TV show and in the Alex Jones documentary Endgame, Blueprint for Global Enslavement. Daniel Estulin, how are you? Hey, Richard, good evening. No, actually, good morning. On this side of the, of the pond, uh, it's great to be with you. Tavistock Institute, fascinating subject matter. And let's begin talking a little bit about the origin. When was the Tavistock Institute formed and who were the people behind it? It was formed uh, in, the, in the 1920 under its uh, founder, Dr. Hugh Cruden Miller's leadership, um, when it was called the Tavistock Clinic. And then uh, shortly after the Second World War, it became uh, um, a Rockefeller-controlled institution and turned into Tavistock Institute for Human Relations which is basically a psychological warfare arm of the British royal family, and it's located in a suburb of London in uh, this area called Sussex, England. And uh, in the 1930s, the Tavistock Institute basically developed this symbiotic relationship with the Frankfurt Institute for Social Research, which is a key research uh, institute also financed by the Rockefellers and uh, organized by people like Theo Adorno. And their collaboration led them to basically to analyze the culture of a population from a neo-Freudian standpoint. Nazism just happened to have been one of its patients on a psychiatric couch. Is it true that Adolf Hitler had a sister, I believe, who lived in Liverpool, a sister or an aunt, I'm not sure, but you'll, you'll, you'll uh, sort this out for me, I'm sure, but it, it is suggested that Hitler may have spent some time at the Tavistock Institute, and I think it was his sister who reported that he would uh, sort of come back and forth between London and Liverpool, and his behavior was very odd. He stayed with her a while in Liverpool. Is that is that a true story? I, I don't I don't think so. I, I mean, I've heard that before, and I kind of looked into it. No, I didn't find any uh, any proof. But what, what what there is obviously is a lot of information on the on the Nazis, on on you know on Hitler, on the Nazi cause, on Karl Jung. You know, this whole neo-Freudian relationship, which is a very interesting, you know, uh, point to discuss if you never can go into it. Absolutely. 
I mean, what is the connection between Carl Jung and, and, and Freud and Tavistock Institute or, or even just brainwashing? Well, you know, one key neo-Freudian who became this overt supporter of the Nazis was the Swiss psychoanalyst Carl Jung, whose friendship with Freud ended over the latter's refusal to see value in Gnostic mysticism. Freud, who was opposed to integrating mystical ideas into psychoanalysis, associated the the word mysticism with seances, voices from other worlds, noises, you know, apparitions, levitation, trances, prophecies, and so on and so forth. Now, Jung saw in Hitler the the apotheosis of Jung's own search for a kind of uh, pagan communion with the beyond, a search that began back in 1915 with Jung's colossal, you know, nervous breakdown. In his 1997 essay on the subject of Hitler and Jung, uh, Wolf, uh, um, which one of the authorities on the subject, believes that there's this, the strongest possible connection between Jung's psychoanalytic theories, uh, which form one of the conceptual bases of New Age ideology today, and his fascination with Hitler. You see, uh, Richard, for Jung, was obsessed by the notion that the deepest reality, the greatest truth lay buried in the unconscious and the mystical, psychotic aspect of man's mind as opposed to the rational, outward, scientific, Judeo-Christian view of the world. And that was the the basis of Jung's decades-long search through himself, uh, attempting to find a pre-existing myth of or, or, or a mythic system which aptly illustrated his ideas about the human psychology of religion. And so he began with Gnosticism, then went on to study astrology, and then uh, um, speculative alchemy as a kind of a, um, symbolic system. And uh, if you kind of analyze a lot of this uh, material, you'll realize that, that to Carl Jung, there's this deep uh, substratum of, of consciousness that lies beneath the layers of mechanical instincts and the measurable phenomena of clinical psychology. A lot, uh, John called it the collective unconscious. I'm sure everybody's familiar with that phrase. And, sure. and that's where, you know, that Cook's uh, analysis and background come from. And, and, you know, and in turn, these images, which, you know, he so often described as, you know, these religious rituals and so on and so forth, this uh, pattern or, or matrix underlying the observed universe, a kind of, of grid of connections linking events according to a system we can only barely perceive are manipulated by the unseen hand of the brainwashers of the Tavistock Institute and also Frankfurt uh, School and people like uh, Theodore Adorno. The the coat of arms for the Tavistock Institute is kind of, uh, not kind of, it's very interesting. We, we see three owls and a sheep being sort of suspended by some kind of a, uh, a, a harness around its midsection. What is the meaning behind this this coat of arms for the Tavistock Institute? It's actually the coat of arms that you're talking about on the cover of the book. It's uh, my publisher's idea, Chris Milligan. Owl, of course, represents wisdom in, 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 in mythology and, you know, in ancient religions. And, uh, and so the idea is that, you know, it's also something, you know, keeps watch at night. And so the idea of, you know, using the coat of arms and, and, uh, and an owl is, you know, to project strength, as so many ancient cultures did uh, throughout centuries. Uh, of course, then the owl is um, also uh, a prominent symbol at the, um, uh, I guess, the playground of the elites in, uh, in, in, in California. Exactly. You know, Bohemian Grove. Bohemian Grove, Alex yes. Jones, uh, while people infiltrated them once, I think it was like 10 years ago or something like that. All right. Um, what is the... Um, 
the the mission statement or the uh, intended objective, not the, the 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 stated one, not the the one for public consumption, but what is what is do you believe the the secret uh, mission of the Tavistock Institute? What are they trying to do? What's their goal? Uh, you know, if you look at it, the purpose of these, uh, you know, behavior modifications, it's literally, you know, to bring about forced change to our way of life without our agreement and without ever realizing of what is happening to us. The ultimate goal being the, you know, this complete extirpation of mankind's inner sense of identity, the, the tearing out of man's, mankind's innermost soul and the placement in the vacant space of an artificial synthetic pseudo soul, but in order to you know in order to change mankind's behavior away from the industrial production to spiritualism, and also to bring us willful into the world of post-industrial era of zero growth and zero progress, one must force first a change in mankind's you know self-image, its fundamental conception of what we are as people, and so thus the image of man appropriate to that new era must be sought, synthesized, and then wired into mankind's brain. And this is something that, you know, these people have been after since the, you know, the, the, the creation of Tavistock Clinic back in, uh, you know, at the end of the, of the First World War and, you know, really taken off with Rockefeller's uh, uh, patronage uh, beginning in 1947, right at the end of the Second World War when Tavistock Clinic turned into Tavistock Institute for Human Relations. Um, now, when you say take us back to a, a, a period of, sort of zero growth, zero development. It sounds like what you're saying or describing is a return to a feudal age. Is that a fair assessment? Well, you know, again, if you kind of look at it, uh, progress and development of society is directly proportional to population density. Uh, so from the point of view of the elite, if you're looking at the planet Earth, which is a small planet with limited natural resources and an ever-growing population base, so if you're the elite, you don't need more people on planet Earth. So the idea of, of deindustrialization, zero growth, demand destruction, uh, plays into their hands because, again, progress and development of society is directly proportional to population density. So there's more people, more growth, uh, more wealth. Uh, which means that you're going to have, um, you know, much bigger population base, and on a planet with limited natural resources, you don't need that. So they did what they're trying to do is deindustrialize the world and bring this, you know, the concept of of zero growth, uh, population reduction, deindustrialization. We have, a, you know, a prototype for that in the United States called Detroit. Very true. We were talking about its its unstated objective. Would it be fair to say? that they are trying to condition uh, humanity into accepting author- authoritarian rule. Would that be a fair assessment? Well, absolutely. It's, uh, if you kind of look at behavior modification, you can go you know, to the first examples of this authoritarian rule back to the 1940s, which was the turning point for the you know, Rockefeller strategy of behavior modification, brainwashing, <coughs> co-determination, co-participation, you know, corporativism for the takeover of the United States and also world labor movement. And uh, basically, as the war wound down, Rockefeller changed the psychology of the workers in ways essential to the way that, you know, he would rule the United States organized labor movement from uh, from then on. And one of the key individuals, if you're actually talking about the, uh, um, the, the people who had uh, such a large role in organizing this behavior modification, was a psychologist by the name of Kurt Lewin. Now, Lewin was the, the father of group dynamics, and one of uh, John Rowling Reese, who is the founder of Tavistock Clinic, uh, first cadre recruits who began his career 
at Cornell University, where he basically worked on a systematic series of studies of the effect of social pressure on the eating habits of children. Now, this occurred in uh, character. He came to the United States in 1933, he was a refugee from Nazi Germany. So Lewin, like many other German intellectuals, was literally forced out of Germany, not because of any uh, basic political differences with us, you know, but as a sacrifice to Hitler's divide-and-conquer anti-Semitism. And so Lewin, in fact, is not only for his uh, refinement of the Nazi-formulated leaderless group technique into a sophisticated tool of counterintelligence. Now, Lewin's uh, most significant proposal, which are made during the whole period of World War II and its immediate aftermath, was his conception of fascism with a democratic face. It's something you see right now in the United States. The common uh, psychopathological feature of all fascist demand is infantilism, who defines himself by his um, attempts to impose the principle of the autonomous extended family and to block out the reality of, of the outer world. So, for example, you know, nationalism, you could call it mother country, uh, racialism, that would be mother, language group, that would be mother tongue, cultural affinity group, that would be uh, family traditions, community, that would be extended family and also neighborhoods. In other words, um, individuals uh, working with, you know, these kind of people such as uh, John Ronald Reese and, and Carl Lewin, uh, you're looking at the different set of brainwashing tactics uh, which they use to impose their will on the rest of society. Well, when we think of brainwashing, uh, you know, we think automatically of, of uh, you know, Hitler's propaganda minister, Joseph uh, Goebbels, uh, Goebbels, and, uh, uh, you know, repeat the uh, the lie often enough, and, uh, you know, repetition is essential, uh, repeated affirmation. Um, other propaganda techniques, brainwashing techniques, of course, many of those perfected by, by the Nazis. Um, I mean, were those techniques perfected at Tavistock, and was, was someone like a, a, a Goebbels, was he receiving instructions from the Tavistock? Not so much so, but, you know, certainly I think Tavistock actually learned a lot more from the Nazis than the Nazis did from Tavistock. You know, and, and the first, you know, case of, of how this brainwashing really works was, was radio. In, in the case of Nazi, Nazi Germany, coming across the radio, you know, think about it, yet millions, you know, millions of homes was the voice of one man, Adolf Hitler. And the fact that all of Germany was hearing his voice at the same time gave um, an enhanced power to the message. So the listener was literally part of this mass experience, taking it all in from the emotionally non-thinking set of reference points. So Hitler's speeches were some of the first mass media events in history as carefully staged as any event in, in modern history. So both Tavistock and also Frankfurt School paid very close attention to Nazi propaganda techniques which they willingly incorporated into their research. And the aim of this project, as stated by Theodore Adorno's introduction to the sociology of music, was to program a mass culture as a form of um, extensive social control that would steadily degrade its consumers. And the application of their research into human behavior was set to launch a decade later in this major irreversible cultural revolution in America. And so basically the brainwashers concluded that uh, mass media events had caused people to suspend their belief in reality. And the first 
you know, shot of that was, again, you know, via radio in, in, in Nazi Germany. And when you suspend this belief in reality, they basically had, in fact, been willing to accept uncritically things being said, which if they had, you know, heard in another context, they would probably, you know, most likely have rejected. Now, you know, think back to today. How insane are some of the things that we have, you know, been told by our leaders? Weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, Iranian mullahs allegedly threatening, you know, the security of the United States, Libyan, you know, leader Muammar Gaddafi supplying his troops with Viagra in order to rape women, you know, participating in the rebellion, Osama bin Laden's death. You know, there's just so many of these, and you kind of, you know, look at it and think about it, and you say to yourself, you know, how, how brain dead are these people to actually accept some of these explanations? Well, what basically had happened was, is that during the Second World War, uh, this this uh, individual by the name of Bruno Bethelheim, who's a, you know, neo-Freudian, he published this psychological analysis of the Nazi period at the behest of the network of brainwashers associated with the Tavistock Institute. So this Bethelheim described how under extreme doubt and terror, the individual will regress to an increasingly more infantile state. And in that condition, the inmates of the Nazi concentration camps literally started to mirror the personalities and mannerisms of the oppressors, the SS guards, and as this widely circulated version of his work, the informed heart it was called, he indicated that, you know, life outside the concentration camps mirrored the psychological disintegration taking place inside. In other words, all German citizens were becoming uh, more infantile, less able to act as reasonable, reasonable adults. And that's where this whole thing about the, you know, the good German comes from. In other words, the good German had to be unseen and also dumb. It is one thing to, you know, behave like a child because one is a child. It is quite another thing to be an adult and have to force oneself to assume childish behavior. It was not just, you know, coercion by others into this helpless dependency. It was also the clean splitting of the personality, which Tavistock achieved later, you know, with, 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 with you know, basing their analysis and research in what was done in Nazi Germany. In other words, you know, men's anxiety, his wish to protect life, forced him to relinquish what was ultimately his best chance of survival, in other words, his ability to react and make appropriate decisions. And these, of course, needless to say, or, you know, began in Nazi Germany as experiments. How uh, important was the medium of radio in terms of the success of, of, of Hitler? I, I'm just trying to imagine how what, what Hitler may have been able to accomplish had he had television at his disposal. I, you know, I think we know what Hitler would have accomplished if had he had television. We see it today, you know, in all over the world, the Dominican of Society, which is the direct, you know, result of everything that we've learned from you know, Tavistock's uh, endless experiences and and uh, uh, over the past, uh, you know, six decades or so. I want to move ahead, and I want to talk about the 1960s and the British invasion, which, as it turns out, may have been just that—the British invasion. When we're talking about uh, these, uh, you know, the Mercy Beat and the arrival on America's shores of, of the Beatles and later the Rolling Stones and the Who and um, the Animals and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and and um, media scientist Nelson Thal, who joins us on the program quite frequently, in an episode on my TV show, we talked about the assassination of John Lennon and he brought up the Tavistock Institute uh, and um, suggested that... 
the Beatles may have been in large measure a psychological warfare experiment created by the Tavistock Institute. Uh, what, what say you? Um, you know, I don't doubt it. I mean, there's just a lot of material out there. If you kind of look at the whole 60s period, look at the, you know, the whole meaning of counterculture, you know, you could talk about British invasion, you could talk about the undeclared cultural war against America's youth, which, you know, began in earnest in 1967, when Tavistock began using open um, air rock concerts to attract over four, I think almost five, actually, million young people to so-called festivals. And, you know, un- un- unknown to most people, the the youth became the victims of this planned wide-scale drug experimentation. You know, we're talking about the hustleogenic drugs, uh, such as, you know, STP, uh, PCPs, MDAs, DMTs, you know, Beals, promoted LSD, and also, you know, blue micro dot LSD-25. You know, all these drugs were freely distributed at these concerts, and before long, you had over 50 million of these attendees between the ages of 10 and 25 years old, you know, who returned home to become the messengers and promoters of this new drug culture, or later, you know, became known as the New Age. And so what happens with the uh, hallucinogenic drugs, they're, you know, psychomimetics, meaning that they mimic certain aspects of psychosis. And so so through the use of these hallucinogenic drugs, one can literally induce temporary symptoms of psychosis and schizophrenia. And so most users of these drugs at the time experienced whole personality changes causing total alterations of the senses. And so the intention of the LSD drug scene and the controlled environment it represented, it wasn't accidental, Richard, but completely intentional. And so the Tavistock Institute had extensively uh, studied the relationship between the brain and behavior caused by these drugs. And later on, the knowledge gleaned from the research was channeled into marketing MTV and radio stations through, you know, classic oldies songs from 15 to 25 years ago, which are targeted, you know, at the adult population. And so what several Tavistock studies showed that a song or a piece of music associated with one's childhood, one heard later in life, could call forth memories and associations of that earlier period. And so you had literally this encoded memories of popular music in the listener recalled when he or she heard the same piece of music from like 25 years ago. And, you know, kind of, you know, think back to, you know, anytime you hear something from, like, you know, the 1980s, uh, you know, and then you kind of go back and, you know, think how you feel. Or imagine if you're on drugs, that whole experience will be reproduced and again and again. So these memories basically triggered an emotional drug flashback that set off an infantile emotional state that brought the listener back to that time in which he or she literally experienced either an identity, you know, or, or crisis or some kind of, you know, uh, situation where it was mirroring the drug, the drug reaction itself. And if you kind of look, you know, what you're talking about, is, you know, the 60s and the music, uh, you know, let's go back to the Monterey Pop, which was the first commercial American rock festival, officially dubbed the first annual Monterey International Pop Festival, which was held in June 1967, you know, two years before Woodstock, when over 200,000 young people gathered in around the Monterey Country Fairgrounds in Northern California for a three-day celebration, which is basically, you know, celebration, you know, classified as psychedelics, you know, using, you know, LSD and everything else. 
Now, what people don't understand is that one of the organizers of the Monterey Festival was John Phillips, the member of the Mamas and the Papas Rock Group, and also the former press agent for the Beatles. And so Phillips was closely linked with Roman Polanski and his wife, Sharon Tate, Mama Cass, uh, Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys, and also many other Hollywood celebrities who in turn were linked to the Charles Manson's family. The fact that, you know, we Sorry, Daniel, I need you to hold on if you could. We're just coming into a break. My apologies. Okay. We'll, we'll pick up on Monterey uh, and John Phillips and the connection uh, with Polanski and, and uh, Charles Manson and so much more. Stay with us. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. To subscribe, just go to ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com and click on Gain access to premium episodes. Again, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get Access to Premium Episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? The truth goes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Then, it is violently opposed. Finally, it is accepted as self-evident. Let me just read that again, what that means. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Daniel Estelin stays with us, and the new book is Tavistock Institute, Social Engineering the Masses. We were talking about the Monterey Pop Festival 1967 and uh, sort of a way of introducing LSD into the uh, American subculture. And you were talking about some of the participants, John Phillips from the uh, Mamas and the Papas. He was associated in some uh, capacity with uh, film director Roman Polanski and of Sharon Tate, his wife, who was, of course, murdered by Charlie Manson's family. Pick it up from there. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating, all these characters, how they all kind of intertwine, you know, with, with these social experiments and also Tavis. You had Mama Cass and John Phillips. You know, they were connected to the Manson family through the Frost of Church of the Final Judgment, which was an offshoot of the Church of Scientology founded in England in the mid-1960s by a couple of former Scientologists, Robert and Marianne de Grimston. Now, formed sometime in 63, 64, 
the Brussels Church of the Final Judgment, it was a kind of a mixture of reincarnation, existentialism, an attempt to, uh, you know, merge the worship of Jehovah and Lucifer, and also a bit of this, you know, neo-Nazi flavor. It is significant, Richard, that the process's legal work was handled by an elite Wall Street law firm, Morrison McVean, whose main backer was American Family Foundation, who used uh, intelligence-connected mind control experts such as, you know, uh, LSD researcher Dr. Louis Jolius West to orchestrate cult, anti-cult hysteria, which is another, you know, part of Tavistock research. Uh, so you basically, you know, like Hegelian dialectic, you control both sides of the equation. So this, you know, this LSD researcher, Dr. West, he was a major participant in the CIA's McCultra, which came out of Tavistock Institute's studies of Nazi social control techniques. You know, people with only passing knowledge of the Manson case usually don't realize that the Beach Boys recorded one of Manson's songs and released it as the uh, B-side of their cover of the old, you know, Earl Solhicki 1958 hit Bluebirds Over the Mountain, a song about, about uh, lost love. Now, the title of the song was suggestive of the CIA mind control operation, which was called, which was called Bluebird, which was a program for... Um, exploring the uses of hypnosis and other means to protect the recently created CIA and its personnel from enemy uh, psychic penetration, which was called Bluebird. So the question that I ask in the book is, you know, is there a reason why Manson's song was on the flip side of the Bluebird cover of the CIA's Bluebird escaped? And was Manson a Bluebird, in other words, a mind control subject gun amok? These are some of the things, you know, that are fascinating when, you know, when you actually go down the rabbit hole, you know, Richard, there's no end to it. Timothy Leary's LSD experiments at Harvard University, is there a connection there with the Tavistock? Well, absolutely. I mean, all of these people were related. And again, you know, you go back to the open-air concerts, you know, you go to Woodstock Music and Art Fair, you know, which Time Magazine labeled, you know, the Aquarian Festival and history's, you know, largest happening and basically in a process. Woodstock and Timothy Leary, you know, they became part of this cultural lexicon. And, you know, if you kind of look at the meaning itself of the Aquarian conspiracy or the Aquarian festival, publicists were very careful in choosing the terminology Aquarium, because according to astronomers, the ages progress in, you know, in retrograde motion, going in the opposite direction as the sun, which moves from the age of Aquarius into the age of the feces into the age of Aries and so forth. And so if you kind of follow the astrological beliefs, the age of pieces, which is, you know, an artifact of the uh, procession of the equinoxes, is the time span of about 200 BC until the current day, which is approximately every 2,160 years. You know, the, the procession of the equinoxes appears to rotate the spring equinox from one constellation to another. So we appear, you know, to be, you know, ending this age of pieces and beginning of the age of Aquarius and moving into this age of Aquarius you know, signifies that the age of pieces, which is the age of Christ, has literally come to an end. And again, if you kind of go to Woodstock and see who put it together, who orchestrated, who financed it, you clearly see the hand of all these very private secret organizations, such as the Tavistock Clinic, the Rockefellers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. As well as you can also look at uh, you know some of the uh, the record publishers, such as you know EMI which is uh, uh, electric, you know, electric music industries, which everybody knows. What people don't know when you're talking about EMI is that uh, a man who actually was credited with Woodstock's creation was a man by the name of Artie Kornfeld, 
which was the director of capital records, which is, you know, was owned at the time by EMI. And EMI, aside from being a music producer, uh, is also one of Britain's largest producers of military electronics and a key member of Britain's military intelligence establishment as a kind of military contractor to the British War Office. So if you kind of, you know, look at this again, you have the, the British royal family, you have the Crown, the Tavistock Institute, which is, you know, British through and through, all behind all of these, you know, uh, uh, fads and, 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 you know, and... Uh, and uh, well, They've got their tentacles you know, everywhere. They have their tentacles everywhere. They love you in Spain. You do very well over here, too, but uh, they, they seem to be very open and receptive to what you have to say and what you write about over in Europe. Why is that? Um, I'm not sure. It depends where. You know, in Spain, I you know I was lucky that the I was published. You know, Bilderberg was picked up ten years ago when it first came out by uh, the third largest uh, publishing company in the world called Planeta, and you know they do about three billion dollars worth of business per year. And there's only two other companies in the world. Uh, one of them is you know Berlsman, uh, who do more business than they do, and so that gave me you know instant credibility on the world stage. And you know now ten years later, with almost seven million books sold, you know. In, 70 countries and translated in 42 languages and now, you know, as you know, nominated for Nobel and then, then you know, Pulitzer Prize for my, you know, previous book. It, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, you know, adds to this credibility, hard-earned credibility, I should say, over the years of getting this, you know, very important information out to the public. Yes, yeah, Spain is, you know, they're very open to this kind of stuff and uh, also Italy and, uh, you know, and, and Portugal, less so in Germany and uh you know, in England, uh, you know, basically the doors are shut. I have not been able to publish any one of my 14 books in uh, in the United Kingdom. Interesting. Interesting indeed. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about advertising, um, which is, let's face it, it's a form of propaganda. Uh, but, I mean, propaganda, what is it? I mean, that's, to be human is to be engaged in propaganda. We all do it. Uh, the question is, is it for... Uh, nefarious uh, purposes, or is it, you know, for something fairly innocuous? But I, I, I was teaching a, a college uh, course in pop culture, and we were looking at some old uh, television and print ads from the 1950s, uh, in which in, in the 50s uh, they were, you know, even Santa Claus was um, advertising, um, I think it was Lucky Strike cigarettes, makes a great Christmas present. And uh, then we had doctors in their white uh, lab coats smoking. Four out of five doctors say you should smoke this particular brand. And um, there were even ads about, uh, you know, never too soon to start feeding your baby 7-Up. Uh, I, I mean, I, you know, it's, it, it, I kid you not. I mean, you know the ads. But I, and I asked the class, do you think we're more savvy today? We're more sophisticated um, and we can see through these types of ads. What do you think? I mean, they're not they're not um, as blatant as they were, but I mean, what kind of propaganda techniques are they utilizing in in advertising these days? Well, you know, it's funny you should say that because you know, after World War II, it was actually Paul uh, Lazarfeld, the director of the Bureau of Applied Social Research at Columbia University, and who especially you know pioneered the use. Canalize American voting behavior, and also by the you know 1952 presidential election, along with Madison Avenue, you know advertising agencies that were firmly in control of Dwight Eisenhower's you know campaign, utilizing Lazarus's work. So basically, you know the power of television and its hypnotic influence on the electorate became a reality in the 52 elections, you know, and ever since. So you have you know the uh, the famous Batten Barton 
Durston and Osborne, you know, ad agency, which designed, you know, Ike's campaign appearances entirely for the TV cameras, as carefully as Hitler's Nuremberg rallies. You know, you had one-minute spot advertisements were pioneered to cater to the, you know, survey-determined needs for the voters. And so, you know, this snowball has not stopped rolling since. You know, the, the entire development of television and propaganda and advertising in the 1960s, uh, 50s and the 60s, you know, it was pioneered by many women who were trained in the Frankfurt School's techniques, you know, of mass alienation. And Frank Stanton went directly from... You know, the single most important leader of modern television. And so basically what you have is, you know, this whole idea, uh, Richard, behind this type of, you know, you call it propaganda, call it social brainwashing, is to better understand the electorate response, you know, to policy dictates of the elite. So if you want people to believe something, then all you have to do is get a poll taken that says it is so and so and get it publicized, preferably on television. You know, and this is what these people have been doing ever since. You know, no matter how you look at, you know, propaganda really hasn't changed all that much. They've, you know, they've improved it, obviously, because of the use, new methodologies involved. But, you know, the, the concept itself hasn't changed at all. You know, it started back in the 19, early 1950s. You know, it just, you know, just kept rolling. We've just got a few minutes left. I want to I want to dial back uh, last year and uh, your book, Trans Evolution, The Coming Age of Human Deconstruction. When I think of trans evolution, I think of this movement pursuit by not just the elites, but I guess those who aspire to be elites, and that is the quest for immortality, the merging of, of humans with machines. What do you mean by the Coming Age of Human Deconstruction, the subtitle. Well, basically what I explained in that book, and this is a book that's nominated last year in the United States, you know, for Pulitzer Prize, which is the most important prize for journalism in America, is I, you know, I, I create a three-dimensional, uh, um, a, um, I guess, model to explain uh, transhumanism, uh, uh, space exploration, uh, you know, nanotechnology, and, you know, this whole technological development. But, the, you know, the basic premise of the book is that, uh, you know, the children, our children, you know, who are today five, six, seven, eight years old, they're the last 100% humans, you know, human generation on the planet Earth. Their children, or, you know, our grandchildren, they're going to be, you know, a transhuman, post-human, uh, men, machine, cyborgs, beings who are not human as a result of, you know, um, a revolution in uh, synthetic biology. And this is the, you know, the, the premise of the book, you know, the, the, this generational change that, that, you know, we're seeing all around us. And, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of advertising right now in the newspapers about, uh, and also articles, obviously, and talking about, you know, conquest of the moon, space, going to moon and Mars, and so on and so forth. But it was actually in my book, Trans Evolution, The Coming Age of Human Deconstruction, which discussed it for the first time and explained, you know, the whole premise behind it. And the premise to kind of look at it again, go back to what we talked earlier in, in the program about, you know, deindustrialization. Again, the planet Earth is a small planet with limited natural resources. And what basically has happened on the one hand, the elite are destroying the world's economy and purpose. And if people don't understand why they're doing this, again, if progress and development is proportional to population density, the Rockefellers of the world... They don't need more people on the planet Earth. They need fewer people because they already control the planet. What they need is to control the natural resources, water, food, etc. 
And so on the one hand, they're destroying the world's economy on purpose, deindustrializing and, uh, and reducing the world's population. But on the other hand, what they're doing is they're investing, you know, the, the gazillions of their dollars. And I'm talking about, you know, uh, trillions, quadrillions of dollars of their wealth into this super futuristic technology that will make the difference between them, you know, the 0.01% and the rest of humanity greater than ever. And if you kind of look at, you know, a lot of these uh, uh, you know, hidden agendas of the government, you know, there's trillions of dollars that go missing, you know, and nobody knows where it, where it is and can't find it. You know, it's, I, I'm convinced that, you know, these trillions of dollars missing, and Catherine Austin Fitz actually calculated it. She was a former... You know, Undersecretary for uh, Housing and Urban Development was, uh, was, you know, Bush father. And she calculated this missing money at about $40 trillion. You know, and as she said in one of her conferences, if you put that $40 trillion in, you know, in, in, into a very conservative fund, you can actually run the world's economy on that. So if you actually have that money and you use it for these hidden technologies, you can really, you know, make a difference between the 0.01% and the rest of humanity. And this is what I, you know, explain in the book, how all these elements, you know, from transhumanism, which is basically a step from, you know, humanism of humanity, transhumanity, post-humanity, this whole stage of change and development of what we are as human beings to another state, something, you know, in the future, which is going to be a lot less human and a lot more machine. And, uh, you know, I explain how this technology actually, you know, uh, uh, works and, you know, fuses itself you know, with you know this uh, futuristic agendas and space explorations, and so on and so forth. Well, you, yeah, it's true. You you actually demonize you demonize space space exploration in in the book. Why why so? I don't demonize space. I think it's fantastic. It's necessary because you know the future of humanity is in space. If you kind of look again at the planet Earth and you extrapolate, you know, our presence on the planet Earth two three generations, there's going to be simply there's all there's always going to be enough room on the planet for all of us. You know, because 7 billion people you can put in the state of Texas. I mean, they're not going to be very comfortable. You know, you can fit them all in there. But what you're not going to have, you're going to have the natural resources. There's going to come a point in the development of humanity, you know, that, you know, that we're going to have to, you know, vacate planet Earth and go and live somewhere else. And so what we actually become, we, you know, we're changing from planetary to, you know, this intergalactic civilization, the first intergalactic civilization and it's necessary to actually conquer space because you know for me immortality is you know to assure the survival of the species and the only way we can survive as a species a million years from now is to actually conquer space you know go to the moon you know start building bases forward colonies go to mars you know and conquer the you know so you know a million years from now you know there's gazillions of us living in every nook and corner of the galaxies and also speaking of the natural resources, all that you know that we don't have here, over the dearth of the elements on the planet Earth, you have in space. You know, we're talking about uh, you know the, 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 how we're going to heat the planet Earth. We're talking about you know running out of uh, oil. Uh, the next uh, step of uh, you know development after oil is you know nuclear after nuclear is fusion fission. And what you have on, on the surface of the moon, for example, is an isotope called helium three. Yes, I've know? talked about and that. You have yeah. enough of that. On the surface, you know, if you actually bring it to planet Earth, uh, you know, to to uh, have a clean uh, source of energy for the planet Earth for the next two thousand years. So again, I think it's 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 marvelous that we're actually going into outer space. It 
it all depends on, on, on how the elite are going to use that technology and all these natural resources for the betterment of humanity, you know, for betterment of themselves against the rest of humanity. Well, do you, do you, we, we've just got a, a minute here, but do you, do you think it's possible that the elites are already in, uh, off planet? I don't have any proof of that. There's a lot of, you know, uh, chatter out there. You know, I've been to some very interesting conferences and I've certainly heard a few very interesting things. You know, like secret space conference, that kind of stuff. There's a lot of people who actually are convinced that, you know, that we already have bases on, you know, on the, on the far side of the moon. Uh, but I don't know. I don't have any proof of that. And, uh, you know, I'm very, very careful not to be branded a conspiracy theorist. So, you know, unless I can verify it and show you documents to prove it. You know, I'm, I'm, I prefer not, you know, not to express my opinion publicly. Well, it's it's possible that Gary McKinnon uh, stumbled onto exactly those very documents when he hacked into. Yeah, it's possible. It's, yeah. it's you know, it's within the realm of possibility. But uh, again, I haven't seen these documents. Understood. Hey, Daniel, thank you. Tavistock Institute, Social Engineering, the Masses. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are. Leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.